0: All right, so this morning we are continuing our series on practical theology. And just to kind of give you an idea of where we've been before we jump into today's sermon, so I kicked off this series talking about sin and addiction and how they mirror each other and look pretty similar. And then Chris has talked about a couple of different um, sort of practical overviews of a bunch of different theological principles. So we walked through evangelism, stewardship, the church, love, gifts of the Spirit, and what each of those look like and kind of a broad overview of the theology of all those things. And last week, Jake and Ken have both walked us through some of the theology that has more practical implications, like talking about boundaries and the sin recovery process and what that looks like. My take on practical theology has kind of been coming out of this verse. So Romans 1, 18 through 20. Not, not the 18, not so much the wrath of God part, but we'll get, we'll get to it. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So God, as a creator of this world, has left his fingerprints in a bunch of different places. And one of the cool things, undergoing a science education, both in sort of the social sciences, looking at healthcare, and then also in fundamental sciences, since I was a chemistry major before pharmacy school. Woot. There's a lot of different ways that God has left his fingerprint in some of the sciences that we then go and study. So, God reveals himself through that creation, and even like physics was my least favorite part of the sciences. But even in that, I could see the fingerprints of God because all of this order behind creation that he created and that we're able, some of us are able to understand through mathematical principles and looking at all of those different things, is a beautiful example of the order behind creation. I can't understand it, but some people can, and they've spent their lifetime studying that. And in the same way, in some of the social sciences, there's been uh, ways that God has revealed himself and how he created us and some of our inner workings that then reflect back on God. And so that's where kind of the sin as addiction came from, and that's also where today's sermon topic comes from. So today, we are doing practical theology, looking at the stages of change. And kind of the underlying principle of this is, When was the last time you were able to argue someone into a lasting lifestyle change? Has anyone had any success in this? (laughs) I know I haven't. So we're going to talk through some practical things looking at the psychological principle of stages of change and then how that applies to spiritual change as well as evangelism. And... I'm not going to plagiarize. It is possible to plagiarize yourself, but today's sermon mostly comes from actually an article that I published in Christianity and Pharmacy, so that is my citation of myself before I got married so that I don't plagiarize myself. And then sort of the underlying principles here are not my own. They're based on the works of two investigators, so Prochaska and Di Clemente, which I have cited their works there. And then I also heard this great presentation about how to respond to people who are in the middle of addiction at different stages of change by Dr. Ted Perrin. And so his presentation is also cited on there. <laughs> no plagiarism. So when we talk about the stages of change, those researchers have titled it the Trans-Theoretical Model," which is a really fancy way of saying when someone is making a lifestyle change, there's sever- several different steps that they go through, and we're going to kind of walk through all of them. So at the top here, we start with the first step, pre-contemplation. We then move to contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. And then relapse. And this is sort of a spiral that someone goes through each of these different stages anytime they're trying to make a change. So where this really came out of, it started in addiction research. And then we talk about it in healthcare in trying to talk with someone through making a lifestyle change like taking their medications or exercising or... Any of those different changes, we talk about people being at different stages of these and how our reaction to them as healthcare workers or as social workers changes based on what stage of change they are. So when we're looking at this pre-contemplation stage here, someone who's in the pre-contemplation stage of change really has no intention of changing at all. So they have, they have no intention to make a change in the n- near future. And this stage is marked by avoidance of talking about the behavior. They may become defensive about it. And the cons really outweigh the pros. So most of you said that you knew someone who has been affected by addiction. And when they're not willing to make a change, when they're in this pre-contemplation stage of change, if you talk to them, hey, you know, you're... I'm seeing you drink a lot, and it seems like it's really impacting your life. This is where they become very defensive about it. They are not at all ready to make any kind of change, and you just mentioning the very fact of what what you're seeing in their behavior is going to make them very defensive, and they're going to come back on the attack. And that's what that pre-contemplation stage is. When we're in contemplation, the person is aware that a problem exists, but they're not really ready to make a change. So here they, they might, you know, feel, eh, maybe in like six months I'll get to that and I'll make a change. I'll start dieting, I'll start exercising, I'll start doing whatever. But they still kind of have an ambivalence about making the change and they're not planning on it anytime soon. So here there's more of a balance between the cons and pros. So in pre-contemplation, the cons way outweigh the pros of the change. But here there's kind of more of a balance and a consideration that's being made. And then we get to this preparation, and preparation and action are often kind of melded together. So in preparation, someone is intent on taking action to address the problem, and in action, they're already starting to make changes to address it. So in preparation, they want to make a change in the near future, they've begun to take steps toward that change, they're planning, they're starting to make a plan and form a plan, and here the pros of that change outweigh the cons. In action, they're already making the change, but it's still fairly recent. And then once you get through action, you get into maintenance. And here in maintenance, you have a sustained change where that new behavior is replacing the old behavior. So there it's continuing to enact that change over an extended period of time. It becomes more of a habit. And then, unfortunately, also part of the stages of change is relapse, where you fall back into the old patterns of behavior. And once someone has relapsed, then they start again in pre-contemplation, where they have no intention of changing their behavior. Then they'll go to contemplation, where they're aware that a problem exists, but they're not really ready to make a change yet preparation, where they're intent on taking action, action, where they're actually modifying their behavior, maintenance, where they're sustaining that change, and then relapse. Now, with this... Once you start to get on that cycle of making a change, it tends to be that the relapse doesn't last as long. It might not be quite as deep. And so we call this kind of the upward spiral of change, where you enact a change, you're maintaining it, you maybe slip back into some old habits, you realize you need to make that change again, you make the change, and it, it continues to go in sort of an upward spiral. So when we're trying to elicit change in somebody... Arguing them into it typically isn't very effective. That's why nagging doesn't work on husbands. But there's different ways to respond to a person based on what stage of change they're in. So pressing too soon, so taking someone who's in pre-contemplation here and really trying to argue them into that change can actually do more harm than good because it builds more barriers to that person making a change. And then you end up adding even more to that con pile so the balance between the pros and the cons is weighed even more heavily towards the cons. So the overall goal when working with someone to elicit a lasting lifestyle change is to work on building that relationship. And how you're building that relationship is going to change a bit as you work through each of those different stages of change. So here in pre-contemplation, your goal really is to maintain that relationship. So you focus on brief interventions. So it might look like, Hey, look, because I care about you, we're going to talk about your alcohol use, and I can see that it's affecting your family. I can tell you're not ready to make a change, so we'll move on from that, but just know because I care about you, I'm going to keep asking you about it. Now, hey, let's talk about your new grandbaby, and let's see, you know, what's, what's going on with them. How are they doing? Do you have some pictures? So you're focused really more on building that relationship and maintaining that relationship. You don't let go of talking about the change that they should make, but you're focused more on the relationship rather than the change. As someone comes from pre-contemplation into contemplation, this is where it's more about education because here they're starting to build more into their pros category for making that change. And so you're working on maintaining that relationship still because our goal here is to maintain that relationship and continue to build it. But since they're moving further on that path towards action and making a change, you, started, you sort of start to explore their barriers to that change. You know, hey, you've been talking about doing this for a while. Why haven't you done it yet? What's standing in your way? Let's talk about it. And you work more in education and help them to discover the benefits of making that change. Once you get down here to preparation and action, the approach to that person is more of a behavioral approach. So you've built a relationship up here with pre-contemplation. You've talked about the benefits of making a change and educated them with contemplation. And then when you get to preparation and action, it's really more about helping them make a plan for how they're going to enact and then continue to enact that change. So you've built the relationship, you've educated about the risk, you've shown them the benefit of the change, and here we're really practically preparing for that change, identifying useful strategies and making a plan to accomplish their goals. And then once you get here into maintenance, it's about preventing relapse. So talking about um, ways that they might end up reverting back to old behaviors, calling them out on it. If you do see them start to revert back to old behaviors, and then continuing to maintain that and maintain that change in their life. So, we use this for lifestyle changes pretty much in medicine. But the more I looked at it and the more I thought about it, this isn't exclusive to, hey, I think you should take your medication on a daily basis, right? Because when we're talking about a lifestyle change, spiritual changes and deciding to follow Christ are some of the biggest lifestyle changes that we make and some of the biggest lifestyle decisions that we end up making. So, The Bible talks about how this this spiritual lifestyle change is a very stark change. It talks about following Christ in terms of lost and found, Luke 15, blindness and sight, John 9, light and dark, John 3, 19, and then also again in Ephesians 5, death and life. So these stages of change that we talk about in in healthcare and in addiction also relate to how we make changes on a spiritual level and how, how Christ comes in to this. Once we're following Christ, once we've made that lifestyle decision that we're going to follow Christ, then there's this continuous process of change that we call sanctification. So, it makes sense that these stages of change that we talk about will also impact and will also be reflected in spiritual change. And a similar approach can be taken to interacting with people on these different stages of change when we're talking about evangelism or trying to convince someone that they need to make a change in their spiritual life. So, The stages of change can also be an evangelism tool. And we see throughout the Bible, um, Christ and different people interacting with individuals who are at sort of different levels and different stages of change. And Christ changed how he interacted with them based on sort of where they were spiritually. So we're going to walk through some of those. The first, pre-contemplation. This is kind of the easiest one to find examples for. The Pharisees. They were not at all ready to make a change. And when they were interacting with Christ, that was very, very evident in their interactions with him. They were very standoffish, they were very defensive in the ways that he was challenging their religious order and what they thought their religion should look like. But then we also had the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young men said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So at the beginning, it sort of seems like he's ready for change. You know, let's talk about what I need to do to enter heaven. And Jesus walks through all the different commandments. But then as you get further into the actual lifestyle change that would be needed, giving up on his wealth and not trusting in that, but trusting in Christ instead, that conversation revealed that he wasn't ready for the change that God was demanding of him in order to follow Christ. And he ended up walking away. So on our own, I think it's important to to note that on our own, we are not able to talk someone out of that pre-contemplation stage. We're just not able to do that. That is the work of the Spirit, not the work of us. And in Second Corinthians, it talks about this when Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? If something smells like death the last thing you're going to do is walk closer to it. So for someone who's in this pre-contemplation stage, they're not ready to follow Christ. The Spirit hasn't illuminated the things of Christ for them. Our trying to talk about Christ to them is going to smell like death. For someone who's already had their eyes open, for someone who's further along in the stages of spiritual change, it's going to be more of a life-giving fragrance, and they're going to want to know more. So in this case... It's more effective to continue to make those brief interventions. Hey, man, let me tell you what God's been doing for me recently. And focus on building up that relationship with them rather than continuously trying to to be a Bible basher and beat them over the head with the things of God. That's how we would approach someone who's in the pre-contemplation stage of change when we're trying to evangelize to them. Brief interventions, talk about what God has done for you, absolutely keep bringing up the things of Christ, but that's not what your focus is. Your focus is on building the relationship with that person. All right, so that's pre contemplation. And next we go to contemplation, considering to make a change but not quite ready for it yet. And my example for this is looking at the people of Athens. So when Paul went into Athens, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among him were Dionysus, the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius, and others with him, with them. So while he is conversing with these people in Athens, building relationships with them in the marketplace, some were curious about what he had to say and started to ask more questions. So remember, with someone who's in this contemplation stage of change, our approach to them is to educate and to continue to build up that relationship, but then also talk about the change and start to talk more about the pros and help them to discover the benefits of making that change for themselves. So because Paul had an audience that was asking more questions and was ready to hear more, that's exactly what he did. He spoke to them more. He educated them more. He talked about Jesus, what he did, and used what they already had in their context to make it culturally appropriate for them so that they had a way of understanding it. Like Chris interpreting the the teenager for us this morning. So He used what he observed in their town and gathered in conversations to make a connection between what they already knew and what he had to share. He presented the gospel through education. Some mocked, they weren't ready for change, but others were ready to hear more and ended up following them. So Paul didn't try to continue to press it with the people who weren't ready to hear more. Instead, he educated those who were willing to listen and then continued on his way, and the people who wanted to know more ended up following him. We also see this in Nicodemus in John 3. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, he's this man of the Pharisees, which really were not, as a general people group, not ready for change. they not ready to hear about the things of Christ. But this is a man from the Pharisees who wanted to hear more, and he sought Jesus out. So Jesus started to educate him more and answer his questions and respond to him and interact with him. But in this case, Nicodemus wasn't quite ready to make a commitment yet. He came to Jesus to ask some questions. Christ took an educational approach, and then Nicodemus ended up walking away not really ready to make a change quite yet. So we've talked about some examples of people who are in that pre-contemplation stage, not ready to make a change, taking a more relational approach with them. We've talked about people who are in that contemplation stage where they're thinking about making a change and taking a more educational approach with them. And now... We're looking at people who are either preparing to make a change or starting to make a change. So these are people who we've built a relationship with them. We've educated them about the things of God. And now they're starting to think about very seriously making a change. So in them, it's taking a more behavioral approach. Like with the disciples in Matthew 4. So this is uh, Peter and John. No. was this? This is Simon Peter and Andrew that he was calling in this case. Um, so in, in, John, in Matthew 4, Jesus says to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. So they were ready to make a change. And Jesus took a behavioral approach with them, saying, Follow me, and immediately they left, and they followed Christ. We also have Zacchaeus in Luke 19 And behold, there is a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So here, Zacchaeus is making this... um, major behavioral change, he ends up actually going and making restitution to the people that he had stolen money from after Jesus talks with him. So that's a major behavioral change where he's going from being a chief tax collector, extorting money out of people and making his living by extorting that money, to then Jesus calls him out of that tree, talks with him about a new way to live his life, and then he ends up giving half of his goods to the poor, and if he's defrauded anyone, he restores it to them fourfold. And then we have the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And here Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then Jesus continues to talk with her and continues to have a conversation with her and explains how his, his new kingdom is going to work on earth. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So he directly approached her sin, called her out on it, and then ended up educating her and talking about how his coming changed the conduct in worship. And then this woman came away from that encounter, went back to her town, and ended up becoming a catalyst for change within the people that she lived with. She went and she told them immediately about who this Jesus was and how her interaction with him had gone. So here we see three different people who are ready to make a change, and the approach that Jesus took with them was very behavioral. It was, follow me, and they had a sudden change in how they lived their life. So then after we've made a change, it's all about maintenance, and we call that maintenance sanctification. It's the big fancy word that we talk about, how we maintain following Christ and how we become more like him. And here, the focus is on continued spiritual growth and discipleship. We're continuing to grow, continuing to learn more about God, and continuing to make more changes so that our lives more closely reflect his. And this is reflected in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable— So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So just like when when you're training to run a marathon, I have no hopes of running a marathon. I would love to be able to run a 5K, but I can't go from my couch to running a 5K overnight. Right? It takes a process. So you run a mile if you can make it a mile. You run a half mile if you can't make it a mile. And you gradually change and you gradually build upon that and discipline yourself and keep working on it until eventually you're at this, the place where you can accomplish that 5K. Other people do marathons. This is kind of what Paul is talking about doing in our spiritual life. We continue to discipline ourselves. We continue to work at it. We continue to pray about it. We continue to rely on the Spirit to make that change within us and continue to pursue God, and then he works that change about in our life as we are faithful to continue to pursue him and get to know him better. And that's what the maintenance stage of spiritual change is going to look like. All right, so now what? We've gone through all the different stages of change, how it applies to spiritual change, and how we can use that as an evangelistic tool to assess where someone is in being willing to follow Christ and being open and receptive to the things of God, and how our approach to them can change based on that. And before we go any further into the application, I want to make sure we talk about this, because the final outcome of sharing the gospel is not in our hands. And so, as much as I've laid this out and said this is, this is a way that we can use to assess where people are and how we can share the gospel with them, Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. At the end of the day, this is not an end-all, be-all for how you should approach sharing the gospel. This is a tool that can be used, but God doesn't work well in boxes. So, I can't put them in the box and say this is exactly how evangelism will work every time. This is exactly how God brings about change in a person every time. Because the Spirit can work outside of that. And the Spirit can bring someone from not at all ready to make a change to following God the next day. Or even the next minute or the next hour. So before we talk about the application of this, I just want to lay that out. Because I know that this is not the end-all be-all. It's a tool, and it's a tool that God can work outside of. People aren't won over by our eloquence, they're won over by the Spirit. So I want to make sure that as we approach talking about evangelism ever, we know that it's not about us at the end of the day. It's about God. And the Spirit is the one who impacts that change and affects that change, not us. But looking at these stages of change in the trans-theoretical model does provide a good framework for approaching people. So we can, knowing this, in our interactions with people, assess sort of where they are in that series of stages, and then change how we approach them based on that. If someone is showing a lot of resistance to the things of God and is very defensive about it, then we're going to take a more relationship-building approach with them. Show that you care about that person and listen to their story, because a lot of times there's a lot of hurt towards the church and a lot of bad things that have happened from people who have claimed to be Christians that have happened with that person. So showing that you care about them, listening to their story, and continuing to build that relationship can be more effective than just trying to preach at them all the time. If someone who is, who you're interacting with them and they're showing curiosity and they're asking you questions as you're talking about Christ, cool, educate them. Educate them with your words and then also educate them with your life. Show them who Jesus is and what he has done for you, taking that more educational and teaching approach to them. If someone is ready for a change and they're showing that in the way that they're interacting with you, then taking a more behavioral approach with them and um, using that as a catalyst to have better conversations with them. But outside of all of that, every relationship that we have, especially if we're trying to persuade someone to to come closer to Christ, should be saturated in prayer, remembering that we're not the ones who are going to ultimately end up affecting that change. Making a change in someone comes down to the Spirit. So if if you're trying to help shepherd them along that path, making sure that you saturate that in prayer, because ultimately we're not the ones who are doing the change in people's lives anyway. So... That's a, that's a little welcome into social and psychology science, and I hope that it is um, something practical that you can take away, some practical theology that you can take away to help impact how you interact with the people around us. So, with that, Chris is going to come up, and I'm assuming we're going to do <laughs> nice.